Good morning. Please open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 20 and don't stand yet. I want to say a few words before we read. As you're turning there, let me call your attention to Proverbs 8.15. God says, By me kings reign and rulers decree what is just. And then Proverbs 28.16 says, A ruler who lacks understanding is a cruel oppressor. And we all know it is too easy for sinful man to rule unwisely, to let ambition go to our heads. But when you think of a good ruler, they serve their people's best interest, and in turn, their people want to serve them. But a bad ruler is usually unfair. They're more classified as a dictator or even a tyrant serving their own purposes. Well, today we're going to focus on the fact that we are not rulers. We are called to serve the purposes of the ruler of the universe. So stand with me. We're going to read Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Matthew 20, beginning at verse 20. Then the mother of the sons of Zebedee came up to him with her sons, And kneeling before him, she asked him for something. And he said to her, What do you want? She said to him, Say that these two sons of mine are to sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your kingdom. Jesus answered, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They said to him, We are able. He said to them, You will drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my Father. And when the ten heard it, they were indignant at the two brothers. But Jesus called them to him and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence. And Lord, we pray that you would teach us today. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. What I'm talking about today is very simple. It's the fact that we are not rulers. We are called to serve God's purposes. We are to serve His purposes, not our own. So that He would be glorified, not us. It's that simple. It is the privilege that God has given us. It is his plan. There's a problem. There's a roadblock in the way. There's a hurdle in the way. There's a barrier to doing that. There's a barrier to serving God's purposes. It's sinful selfishness that blinds us to the needs of others and fixates us on me. Our demands... Uh, are such that we say our needs must be met. We're glory hogs. We're like locusts. We just devour everything in our path. Everybody wants to rule. 
Ancient Greeks proudly proclaimed, how can a man be happy if he has to serve someone? The majority view in that day was that ruling, not serving, was the proper posture and stance for a human being. Ruling, not serving. But we know what it's like and we know the truth. As soon as we come down from our power-seeking high, as soon as we crash back down to earth through the humbling circumstances of just daily life, We know that we are not rulers. We don't have the driver's seat. We don't have the wheel. We are passengers along for the ride. And we exist for a purpose higher than our own. We exist for a purpose higher than any earthly power or position or prestige that we might want to go for. We exist for Christ's sake. Now I want to do a little review and and build up to where we're going here today. Last week, if you were with us, we were in Matthew chapter 20, verses 17 through 19. And in those three verses, Jesus very clearly told his disciples, we are going to Jerusalem, and I am going to be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and I am going to be condemned to death, and I am going to be delivered over to the Gentiles, and they're going to mock and flog and crucify me. Then he told them, and I will rise from the dead on the third day. So Jesus told them, that the cross was going to happen and it was going to be very painfully humiliating, but it would, it would, it would open up into glory. It would, it would turn out well. This, this cross, this brutal death that, that was designed by God to bring about eternal life for all who would believe. That Christ died so that those who believe never would. That he became the sin he hated so that he could save those he loved. And Jesus is telling them that what was going to repel them was really crafted to attract. Where Jesus says, if I be lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. So he has very clearly told them about the cross. But also, it's looking back. It was looking back to the the parable that happened before of of this boss who paid better than anyone else. And for you got paid more than what you really worked for. But also those three verses of the cross were pointing forward to what we're looking at today. And here's the scene. Jesus is facing execution, crucifixion. And what are his disciples doing? They're blind to what is going on. They're arguing about their place in the kingdom, their rank. And we're no different. We're no different. While people are, are hurtling towards a Christless eternity, it, it's... it's we become so fixated on relatively microscopic things. It, it's almost like we take little grains of sand and try to decorate them while there's an ocean of need all around us. So we, we understand what, what, they're, what they were struggling with. But the disciples, they were, they were oblivious to what was going on. They're, it's like a, like a distracted driver who's eating and shaving and studying and, and texting all at the same time and oblivious to the, to the danger that they're in. Well, the disciples were blind to what was going on and they were, they were oblivious to the, to the danger their souls were in. They made a selfish request. A bold request, but a very selfish one. And that's what we see in this passage. This selfish request that is made, and then you see Jesus give a loving response. He gives a loving response, but then the disciples still don't get it, and the other ten, 
give an angry response to James and John. But then Jesus turns and clearly teaches them. And he teaches them what is most important. He teaches them probably the biggest lesson that he could give them. You know, he was basically pointing some things out to them. First, he was saying, look, here's what you don't know. That's the first thing we're going to see, what they didn't know. But then he says, you know what? You don't know this, but, but here's what you will know. Here's what you will experience. You see that next. And then you see Jesus saying, and here's what you're going to really need to know. Here's what you're really going to need to latch on to. So let's begin in verse 20 with this selfish request that the brothers make. Actually, it's the brothers and their mom. They, they actually brought their mommy along. In fact, they didn't just bring her. She brought them. They sent their mom. I know it sounds strange, but that's what happened. Now, if you read the parallel passage in, in Mark, you're going to say, well, wait, it just says James and John were there. Why is that? Why did Matthew say that the mom was there? Is there something wrong here? Well, you've got to know something about Matthew. If you've been with us in, in this study on Matthew, you, you, you have probably seen this over and over again, but you hadn't realized it, that Matthew gives more details about how many people are present. And so in the very next story we're going to look at next week, where Jesus, Matthew says Jesus heals two blind men. Doesn't name them, but tells us there's two. Mark, on the other hand, says that Bartimaeus, the blind man, was healed. Doesn't mention the other man. The idea is that Matthew gives more info, more detail about the numbers of people in certain uh, situations. And, and so the brothers and their mom are making a selfish request. In fact, it's a very bold request. Very bold. Now, why did they send their mommy to do this work? Well, in those days, in Roman and Jewish culture, uh, the direct request of a motherly woman would often be more effective than, than the man making the request for himself. So they're basically using worldly wisdom here and saying, well, you know what? If we really want to get what we want, let's send mom. Problem is, worldly wisdom doesn't work with Jesus. So Jesus, knowing what's going on, is going to turn them towards the truth. But they, they basically, and, and she is speaking for them and says, say, ESV says say. The stronger word in the NASB is command. She is telling Jesus what to do. You decree this. You command it. You say it. You make it happen. It was a bold request. And what was the request? That my two boys here would sit on your right and your left hand in the kingdom. Wow. The position on either side of a king's throne, especially the right, were the, were the positions of the most prestige. She wanted them to have front row seats. She wanted them to have the luxury box. She wanted them to be in first class. So here it is. The cross is looming and the disciples are scheming. They're planning for self-glory rather than God's glory. With eternity looming, what are we scheming? What are we planning for today? In verses 22 and 23, we see this very loving response from Jesus. It's where we see him tell them what they don't know. He tells them the truth, and it's a surprising answer to a bold request. He says, here's what you don't know. What you don't know are the implications of your selfish request. You, you don't know what you're asking. 
You don't know the depths of your self-orbiting depravity here. You can't fathom what you're really asking. You don't know. Now, by the way, there's a good thing going on here. The good thing is they were convinced that Jesus was the Messiah and he had the right to rule in God's kingdom. So they had the right guy, but they didn't understand what being greatest in the kingdom meant. And so they said, we want the top two spots. So here's what they did. They, went and they did an end around, around Peter, even, and, other, and the other disciples, and got to Jesus and asked first. It shows how hard calloused hearts really can get. Just imagine you telling a really close friend that you're going to die soon of a terminal illness. And the only response they can give you is, hey, can you give my resume to your boss? Because I'd really like to have your job once you kick the bucket. Insensitive. What the disciples did had to sting. I mean, he'd already promised them thrones. Now they wanted the better thrones, the, the top-tier thrones. They wanted the corner office with the mega screen and the hospitality center they want the, the, the position, the influence, the attention that would come with being in a preeminent spot. What they needed to learn was leadership lesson number one. Leadership lesson number one. Leadership is for serving, not being served. Leadership is for serving, not being served. So Jesus asked them a question. He says, hey, are you able to drink the cup I'm going to drink? They weren't sitting down for, for afternoon tea, as they will be doing, as they do in London or even in India. They're not sitting down for tea. He's not talking about just a, a cup. He's not going to drink a, a smoothie or an energy drink. He's drinking a cup. He's referring to a cup. And what does that refer to? What's, what's the significance of the cup? With the cup of his suffering. But what was in that cup? What was the cup full of? The cup was full of the wrath of God against sin. Go with me to Isaiah 51. Isaiah 51. You get a little picture of, of the wrath of God, this cup of the wrath of God. Isaiah 51. I love, by the way, the, the sound of rustling Bible pages means you brought your Bibles and you have them open. And by the way, if you don't have a Bible, grab one of the ones in the seat and you can take that home. We want you to have a Bible. We want you to read your Bible. But Isaiah 51, 17, wake yourself, wake yourself, stand up, O Jerusalem, you who have drunk from the hand of the Lord the cup of his wrath, who have drunk to the dregs the bowl, the cup of staggering, Turn with me to Jeremiah 25. Jeremiah chapter 25. Another graphic picture of the cup of the Lord's wrath. Verse 15. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel said to me, take from my hand this cup of the wine of wrath and make all the nations to whom I send you drink it. They shall drink and stagger and be crazed because of the sword that I am sending upon them. So I took the cup from the Lord's hand 
and made all the nations to whom the Lord sent me drink it. Jerusalem and the cities of Judah, its kings and officials, to make them a desolation and a waste, a hissing and a curse as it is this day. There was a curse upon mankind due to the wrath of God against our sin. The just wrath of God. And that was the cup that Jesus would drink at the cross. And he asked them, are you going to drink this cup? They reply, well, sure we are. They don't understand. They're still clueless. So Jesus responds, verse 23, with, well, here's what you will find out. Here is what you will know. You will know the meaning of drink the cup because it will be the suffering that you soon will endure. He's basically telling them, you're not getting the penthouse throne. But you will have an up-close and personal view of what it means, the inner workings of what it means to suffer for the sake of righteousness. You'll get that. See what they've won? This is amazing. He says, you, my cup you will drink. Oh yeah, you will drink it. But then he says, you know, but to sit at my right hand and my left, well, and by the way, maybe Jesus is, is thinking about the two thieves that were crucified, one on his right and one on his left. But he says, to sit on my right and left, it, it's not mine to give. It's, it's the Father's prerogative. He's basically saying, look, seating arrangements in the kingdom of heaven, that's up to the Father. It's his choice. It's his prerogative. You aren't getting preferential treatment. Basically, stamp, your selfish request is denied. You're not getting it. You're not getting what you want. How many times do we tell our kids, you know, you can't have that? And we know how good it is for them not to have that. So on the heels of such blatant redirection, you would think that the disciples would say, ah, the light bulb just went on. We get it. Thank you, Jesus. No. No. Look at verse 24. What you see is the other 10 and their selfish response. It says that they were indignant. They were angry. They were literally grieved in their hearts. They were, they were upset. They were mad. Why, why were they mad? Well, there's no altruism going on here. They weren't thinking, I can't believe James and John. Wow, how selfish they are. You know what they were doing? They were thinking, man, they got to Jesus before us. They might get what they asked for. We wanted the better spots. They wanted a big piece of the pie too. I mean, some people know how to put their elbows on the table, and James and John sure do. Wow. So they were indignant. They had, they had the same universal infection that we have. They had the same secret wish to rule. Their selfish, stony hearts are being exposed here. They wanted those front row seats. Isn't it interesting? I was thinking about this this week. Isn't it interesting? When you go to a self-serve line, like a buffet or whatever, we usually take way more than we think we're going to even eat our eyes are always bigger than our stomachs we we pile it up for ourselves but isn't it interesting that when we're serving other people we do portion control this is enough for you 
Isn't it interesting that James and John asked way more for themselves than they could possibly handle? And isn't it interesting that the other ten were so angry about it? They wanted someone to wait on them. They wanted someone to serve them. Don't we all? But life isn't like that. Real life isn't like that. I mean, maybe in some settings you get waited on, you get served. But life isn't like that. God didn't plan that. He has something better in mind. He has something deeper in mind. He has something more fulfilling in mind. And it totally goes against the way the disciples thought and the way that we think. Because next what we see is some very clear teaching from Jesus in verses 25 through 28. I mean, they've made their bold request. They've made their selfish request. Let us have preeminence right next to you. Let us rule. Now nah, you don't know what you're asking. You're going to drink the cup? Yeah, we will. No, well, yeah, you will. (laughs) Little do you know how much you'll drink of suffering. And the tanner angry. And then Jesus teaches. He brings them them close, and he's going to have a a time with them to redirect them, to, to, to radically refocus their priorities. He's going to step in like a referee between James and John and the other ten and say, now break it up here. I need, to, I need to say some things that you need to listen to. He's going to bring the heat here. He's going to say, here's what you really need to know. It's a turnaround lesson. It's, the, it's an about face. Le- it's a repentance lesson is what it is. Here's what you really need to know. What you really need to know is the shocking beauty of the Savior's work. What you really need to know is, is, the, is the shocking beauty of the finished work of Christ. The, what, you, what you need to know is, is my saving work and the ramifications of that for you. Look at verse 25. He says, look, you know the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. It's a key word there, over you know, he's basically saying, look, you can go with this, you can go with that, but you, you really don't want to go with that. You want to go with what I'm telling you here. He's going to eclipse their small ambitions. The rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. They, they exercise a dominion over people. They rule. You know, Gentiles were as negative an example as could be given in that day they were not to be followed it was very clear you're talking Gentiles you don't do what they do I mean pagan rulers were under much more less less stringent moral obligations than the Jewish rulers were and so they more often abused their power they more often played the tyrant everyone back then knew the tyrannical rulers of their day the Gentile model of authority was especially heinous Their rulers claimed to be gods and they demanded to be worshipped as gods. The Roman emperor did the same thing. They showed little concern for anyone's life but their own. Jesus is saying, you know what this is like. Don't go there. So up against this backdrop, Jesus is painting this beautiful picture of humble servant leadership. But it was a very foreign thought to them. Very foreign thought. 
Jesus telling them not to be like the Gentile rulers who, who, who were basically demanding worship. That was a strong word from Jesus. Don't be like the pagans. Don't adopt pagan practices, but instead do this. And here's what he says. Uh, the, the end part of verse 26, he says, he said this, um, whoever would be great among you, whoever would be mega, literally the word is mega, among you, whoever would be first among you, literally chief among you, and, and see what he says at verse 26, it will not be so among you. This is not the way it's going to be with you. No, if you want to be great, you have got to be a servant. A servant. The Greek word diakonos, it's where we get our word deacon. It, it means to be a minister of mercy, to be thinking about the needs of other people. And then he says, if you want to be, if you want to be chief, then you need to be a slave. It's a Greek word doulos. It literally means a bond servant who is at the mercy of his master. See, Jesus turns everything upside down. He continually does this, and he does it again. He inverts the role of master and slave. That's as radical as you can get in making a point. Even for the Jews, they had, they had rules that you had to treat slaves better. But even they considered even a freed slave as socially inferior to everyone else. Once a slave, always a slave. And then Jesus goes for the jugular. Now Jesus gets to the heart of it all in verse 28. I love verse 28. He starts by saying, even as the Son of Man, this, this Messiah this God incarnate who would come to suffer, this greatest who took the lowest position. And he uses a negative proclamation. He came not. Here's what he didn't come to do. So he starts negative and says, he didn't come to be served. Isn't that interesting? We're to serve God's purposes. But the purpose of Jesus coming to earth was not to be served that would come go on for eternity but he came to serve he would serve the best interests of humankind by giving his life as a ransom for many he would serve god's purposes by giving his life it's that simple it was a ransom this word isn't used a lot in the bible maybe a little over 20 times only three times in the New Testament. Matthew and Mark and then in 1 Timothy. They go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 with me. 1 Timothy chapter 2. A ransom, by the way, is, is the price of release. It's the price of release. It, it's redemption. It's his life in exchange for ours. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There is one God... And there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, the Son of Man, God in the flesh, come to save them from their sins. It's the man Christ Jesus, verse 6, who gave himself as a ransom for all. The price of release was paid in the death of Christ. 
He gave himself as a ransom for all. His life in exchange for ours. The key word there is for. A ransom for many. And it's not the idea of, of, of his life on behalf of us, not him acting on behalf of us, but him acting in the place of us. This is substitution. Matthew 20, 28 is the basis for, for the teaching of what we call substitutionary atonement. And I love the fact that Jesus makes it simple enough for a child to understand Jesus died for us in our place. So him calling himself a servant and explaining and, 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 and defining his mission in terms of giving his life as a ransom for many, he's doing what the Messiah would do. He is identifying himself with the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. He is defining his mission for them. It is, it is the fact that he died for us in our place. Last week I, I mentioned the word behold once again. And I mentioned that behold was like Jesus' whistle to get the attention of the disciples. But if behold is a whistle, then this word in Matthew 20 is an alarm. Yesterday I was out in the desert with the Fellowship of Grace Brethren at our national conference. I'm, I drove home to be with you and I'm going back this afternoon for, for several days with some of our staff and elders. But it's interesting, we were sitting in the meeting yesterday and, and the fire alarm goes off. And not one of us moved. It was a big group in a big room and none of us moved. We all looked at each other and smiled and said, probably a false alarm. And the reason we did is because we couldn't smell any smoke. See, well, there's no smoke, there's no fire, and we were right. I mean, the public address thing came on, and we heard, no cause for alarm, false alarm, not an emergency. And we all looked at each other and said, we knew that. Someone pulled the alarm accidentally. But here, in Matthew 20, smoke. And the smoke was their bold, selfish foolish request to have first spots in the kingdom they were way off base and there was a lot of smoke and they were choking on the smoke and so jesus sets the alarm trips the alarm this is a three alarm fire this is big and by the way he then he strengthens it by using the standard jewish argument how much more if i did this how much more ought you to do this if your master served, how much more ought you to serve? And see, Jesus, in, in his words, in, in, in these verses, is calling for a response. He is not just making a statement and saying, so uh, put that in the bank. No, he's saying, put feet to this. Live this. Here's what you don't know. You don't know how really selfish you are. <laughs> and what, you, what you're going to know is how much you're going to suffer for the sake of righteousness if you follow me. And what you're going to really need to know is what my mission is all about. I came to serve by giving my life. We get that. We get that because we are infected with the same disease the disciples were infected with. And we struggle with the same issues that they did. And we must get around to actually living it like they did. 
I was thinking about this a lot this week and, and thinking about how this, how this can play out in my life and in your life. And the first thing that came to my mind is that we have got to resolve to own our place in God's plan and not go searching for something else all the time. Jesus said, it shall not be so among you. Don't do what they do. You're not a ruler. You're a servant of the Most High God. So serve God's purposes like Jesus. Embrace the mission of Jesus. There's one verse in the book of Acts that I, every time I think about it, and I think about it often, I am so encouraged by. I am so encouraged by it. It's in Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13, Paul is preaching, and he's, he's, tell, he's preaching Christ, but he's telling them about their background, the Jewish background of, of, of Abraham and, 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 and David and, and all this, and, and tying it into Jesus coming. But he makes this one statement that's really almost a, just a transition that I've latched on to because it, it teaches us so much about what Jesus is saying in this passage. It's verse 36. Verse 36. And, and it's a simple statement that, that, that Paul makes when he's preaching. Here's what he says. He, and by the way, it's in the context of God raising Jesus from the dead, that he didn't see corruption. Okay? And he says this. For David, so King David, after he had served the purpose of God in his generation, fell asleep. Now, some of you fall asleep in church sometimes. Some of you fall asleep in class sometimes. Some of you fall asleep even at the dinner table. I realize that. That's not the fall asleep here. It just means he died. David died. David, after he served the purposes of God in his generation, died. That's what we're all going to do. Unless Jesus comes back first. We're, we, we, we ought to aim to own our place in God's plan and serve God, God's purpose in our generation and then go when Jesus calls us. No man knows his time, right? Our times are in God's hands. But until that time, we are going to serve the purposes of God, not our own. It's our true calling. It's your true calling to, to serve the purposes of God in, in this generation. You were saved to serve God's purpose. Eternity awaits, but the time here is short. We know that. We were watches. So resolve it. Oh, we wear phones. <laughs> Excuse me. What am I thinking? We wear phones. <laughs> we know what time it is. Resolve it. Make up your mind to own your place in God's plan. Bloom where you're planted. As the scripture says, whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And you might not know the specific assignment that God has for you. You might still be searching for what that is. You might be engaged in life, but you might have this gnawing feeling that what you're doing is really not what you were meant to do. I understand. But wherever you find yourself, do this. Serve for the good of others rather than yourself. Wherever you find yourself, do this. Give rather than take. I had a really good picture of that in my life just recently. Uh, I was in Philadelphia at a ministry called Urban Hope in the inner city of Philadelphia and I was struck by what I saw and I believe God changed my heart in many ways by what I saw I was only there three days but I observed heart level on the ground 
simple, incarnational gospel ministry in people's lives. They are drug addicts and drug dealers getting saved and still struggling with their old life and learning what it means to walk in Christ and getting teaching and encouragement and mentoring on that path. There are families that have been torn apart. And very interestingly, I was talking to Ed Lewis, the guy who runs things over there, and he said to me, he says, you know, Mike, you don't need to spend a lot of time convincing them that they're sinners. They already know that because their life is a living example of that. Isn't it interesting that where we live, it seems like we have to uh, convince people of the truth that we really all know when we put our head on our pillow at night sure those who don't know Christ are deceived by the devil but I think most people in their heart of hearts when they when they when they lay down at night and it's just them they know you know maybe you might never find out what if this happens what if you never find out this side of eternity what you were really meant to do in life that you never that you die not really fully being convinced that what you were doing was the thing that God called you to do. That's a possibility. But let me say this to you. Could it be that if you resolve to own your place in God's plan right where you are, bloom where you're planted right where you are, serve and give right where you are, that could it not be that you would, you would get to heaven one day and, and, and God would say, well done, good and faithful servant, because although you might not have really gotten it in terms of what's my purpose, you fulfilled it because you were faithful for what, with whatever was right in front of you. When I was a kid, I would sit in church and look at the preacher and think to myself, could I do that? And the answer was always, no way in the world. I couldn't talk very well. I was too shy. I wanted to be a policeman like my father. But God had a different plan. And in his perfect time, he, he drew me to himself and saved me when I was a sophomore in college. And then he called me to, to preach the gospel of the grace of God in Christ, which has been my privilege since 1985 to do that in various settings. There's nothing else in the whole world that I want to do. You know, there's a reason that I'm here today beyond the fact that God is sovereign and he called me to do this and it's, you could just say, well, it's your job, it's your responsibility, you were supposed to be here. The reason is because there was nowhere else on earth I wanted to be than here with you today with our Bibles open. Whatever place God gives us, it is not to lord it over people. It is to be under Christ the Lord. You've got to resolve to own your place in God's plan. Inescapable, this next point. You've also, and, and I think this is where the importance of drinking the cup comes in for us the fact that life won't be easy for a follower of Christ. The idea is that we must receive whatever comes as from God's hand. Suffering. I want you to do something this afternoon. I want you to read 1 Peter, all five chapters. It'll take you like 15 or 20 minutes. 
unless you're a speed reader, and then you'll be done in a minute. But read First Peter. Get a grasp of what Peter was talking about to those early Christians and what God is talking to us about when we read that regarding suffering for the sake of righteousness. Most of us in Christ are very humbled by life. I mean, we mourn the weight of our sin. We mourn the weight of others' sin. And it's really easy to try to prop ourselves up, mask our insecurities. But Jesus paid the ransom in our place. He's the only place to go. And you can find comfort in knowing that whatever you go through in life, if you're in Christ, God brought it to you for a reason. And you can rest assured that all is in God's hands. My cup you will drink, Jesus said. He's talking about going through suffering. He's even talking about dying for him. For sure he's talking about dying to ourselves and living to God. But think about James. He was the first of the 12 to be martyred. Here's James who wanted the corner throne, the, 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 the throne with a view. He was the first of the 12 to be martyred. You can read about it in Acts chapter 12 and verse 2. And John, well, he probably lived to about 90, but he was martyred. I mean, excuse me, not martyred. He was banished. He was, he was, he was um, exiled for Christ. And in the book of Revelation, it tells us that he was exiled for, for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. That's why he was there. He was suffering for Christ. It's interesting, some of the biblical writers that God used adopted the titles, the names that Jesus threw out here in this passage, servant and slave. And so Peter and Jude and John and Paul all called themselves slaves and servants of Christ. Paul even said, I will, I will most gladly spend and be spent for your souls. Last thing I'll mention is as we can think about the, the ramifications of this passage for our life, it, it's the turnaround lesson applied. It's the idea is that because of Christ's finished work, we do God's work. That we can rejoice in the goodness of God in sending a Savior and then wholeheartedly serving and giving because He sent the Savior. That we can revel in the plan of God to send the Son of God to save a people for God through the power of God and the Spirit of God who would serve the purposes of God all to the praise of God. See, Jesus says, here is how it will be with you. Here's how it will be. Isn't it awesome that Jesus said and did these things? Isn't it awesome that we have this hope? That everything flows from Christ to, for, and around Jesus I read this, this quote this week. It was by a guy named Britt Merrick who is a pastor up north, but he's, he's his family's struggling because their seven-year-old girl is, is dying of cancer. Many operations. But here's one of the things he said, and I, I think it makes sense in this passage. He said, if we go into the world before we go to God, we find ourselves going into the world to get love rather than to give love. See, the disciples had to go through Jesus on this to get redirected and then be sent out. They couldn't do it on their own. Jesus is our model who came 
to serve and to give his life for many. And he wants you to serve his purposes in this time, in this place, for his glory. A self-centered life is a barren wasteland. It's a desert. It's, it's a mirage. But a Christ-centered life is an oasis. It's a transformation. That we would have one agenda. Like Ephesians says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Our rally cry should be for the kingdom. For the king and the kingdom. Not for me, not for you. For the king and his kingdom. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we thank you that you are calling men and women and boys and girls of conviction and substance and faith and trust and compassion and obedience and honesty and repentance and love and mercy. You're calling people who do not care who gets what piece of the pie, but only that you get the glory. Thank you, Lord, that you are preparing us for eternity. And thank you, Lord, that you have a job for us to do right here on earth. Lord God, thank you that you give your church everything it needs to do everything you want in every time and place, including this time and this place. Lord, we are people hungry for a purpose and a hope. And we know it's only in you. Lord, use us. Lord, may we use our gifts that you have given us to their fullest. May the word be lived out in us. We thank you, Lord. We will thank you and we will praise you. In Christ's name.